you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor and Claudia Puig, who's the president of the LA Film Critics Association. She's also the program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. First up is the comedy No Hard Feelings, starring Jennifer Lawrence. Gene Stepnitsky is the director and co-screenwriter with John Phillips. Claudia, what did you think of No Hard Feelings? Well, um, so the R-rated sex comedy, racy sex comedy, is something we have not... It used to be a movie staple. Remember American Pie yeah, and all those movies? Yeah. yeah. But it's pretty much vanished from the American cinematic landscape, maybe in the wake of Me Too or who knows. But um, this is not an auspicious attempt to revive it. Um, it appears to be kind of this raucous sex comedy, but it, it also ends up kind of sentimental and predictable and... Um, I'm not really quite sure what Jennifer Lawrence is thinking. You know, she's such a wonderful actress, and she's, you know, Oscar-winning, Winter's Bone. This just seems like an odd choice for her, but she's always good, and she's very watchable. She starts out as this really brash, self-absorbed, combative person, and then she kind of changes on a dime to become likable and sweet with not a whole lot of explanation. doesn't feel that earned. But... um, So it doesn't necessarily feel like a wise career move for her, but she plays this cash-strapped kind of uber driving mess of a person who's she was kind of a seasonal cocktail waitress she's kind of keeping things together and she has a house that was left to her by her mom she doesn't have the money for the taxes so she's it starts off with her car being repossessed she's on the brink of you know a mess and she sees this ad for these wealthy helicopter parents who are played by Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti, and they're actually pretty good, looking for someone to date their introverted 19-year-old son is going to go off to uh, Princeton. And um, anyway, so they're looking for him to have this sort of real-life experiences to date, you know, to have a date, to have a kiss, because he's never really kissed anyone. And at one point, Broderick says, you know, date him hard. And so they're kind of looking for him maybe to be deflowered as well, which is a little hard to believe on its face because these people are very hovering and protective. But Yeah, this seemed to be counter what they've tried to do exactly. throughout his life. Exactly. So if you buy, there's all kinds of things like that that don't quite, you know, add up. Um, and there's a lot of cringy comic attempts and witless things, some bad one-liners. But it, there's also a nice chemistry, kind of a friendly, fun chemistry between um between her and um, the young boy, who his name is Percy in it. Um, I just thought you can't analyze it too carefully. There's some laughs here, but it's pretty uneven. Um, mm. You know, that whole conceit about boys sleeping with prostitutes in order to become men, it's, you know, it's kind of in that vein, except that that's not who she is, of course. But she... Um, I just didn't buy it, and the wacky scenarios weren't funny enough to make you sort of overlook that. Having said that, Gene Stepnitsky, the director, um, just did the really entertaining streaming series Jury Duty, and also which a was quite raunchy. a feat to pull that uh, totally. comedic reality totally. series off. Yeah, and I'm really surprised that he would do kind of a such a sort of toothless comedy that has this sort mm. of sticky sweetness to it. Uh, Andrew Barth Feldman is the actor Thank you, you were uh, yes. thinking about. No yes. Hard Feelings, starring Jennifer Lawrence. It's rated R in wide release. The documentary Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy takes us back to that historic 1969 production Oscar-winning picture and the first X-rated film to win a Best Picture Oscar. It's since been re-rated to an R. Peter, what did you think of Desperate Souls? Uh, I think it's a pretty good film. It's, I mean, I'm always very interested in, um, you know, the backstory documentaries, films about films, uh, and especially this film because there was so much else going on besides what's on the screen. Uh, the, you know, when it was made, it's based on a um, on a, a nonfiction uh, book, uh, quite a good one by Glenn Frankel, uh, who had done previously books on uh, the making of um, High Noon and the Searchers. 
Uh, his high noon book is is outstanding. Yeah, it's really terrific. Right. And uh, you know, I mean, he he didn't start out as a, a reporter uh, on film, but he he's sort of moved into this over the years. Um, the film, the best parts of of the film are are the clips from Midnight Cowboy, <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly, particularly. Uh, the scenes between uh, Ratso Rizzo, Dustin Hoffman, and Joe Buck, John Voight, which, which to me has always been the core of the film, the heart of the movie. I think in some respects this is an overrated classic. Uh, there's a lot of stuff surrounding that relationship that's, you know, sort of garish and, 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 and uh, outdated now, certainly. Yeah. Um, also, it's interesting you mentioned, Larry, that it was the first X-rated movie, which is true, but what I didn't realize uh, is that from the film is that the, the X rating was really more the work of the producer. They were worried about the content of the film and how it would go over, and so they were the ones that were pushing for the X really? rating, as opposed to the uh, the, MPAA. the MPAA. Yeah, um, and uh, so there are interviews with John Voight, uh, who's quite quite good, quite eloquent about uh, working with Schlesinger, especially and and and, uh, and Dusty. Uh, Brenda Vaccaro also, and uh, Bob Balaban uh, is interviewed in it. Um, Jennifer Salt, who is the uh, the daughter, has a bit role in the movie. She was dating Void at the time, but she was the daughter of Waldo Salt, who's the Oscar-winning screenwriter for the film, who'd been blacklisted uh, up until not long before this movie, uh, had his name on the credit. Um, what I found a little bit off-putting on the movie is that it's, as is true of a lot of documentaries now, it tries to do too much. It puts the film in the context of not only the films that were being made in the late 60s and the, the, uh, the openness to, to new ideas and new experience that, that happened with the decline of the rating system and so forth, but also it, you know, Vietnam is big in this movie. The very first image of the film is you know, footage from uh, uh, you know, Vietnam uh, in the jungles, and it ends you know, that wonderful last shot of the two of them on the bus and then, he, you know, she puts a, a Vietnam carnage f footage over it. Completely unnecessary and, and, and also highly debatable. Mm -hmm. um, the film is, you know, it, 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 the point is made that this was at the, you know, the, the, the real, the dawn of, of the gay lib and also of, um, uh, you know, Watergate. I mean, there were a lot of things that were going on in this era that play into the film. Uh, but the fact that the film is also it doesn't quite address the fact that there was at the time even you know from 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 gay audiences a feeling that this was an anti-gay movie yeah, that they showed yeah. only you know sleazy stuff. Also, the women, almost without exception, in the movie are are sort of harridans and and you know angry viragos and and it just. Uh, you know, there's an aspect to the movie that I think is off-putting both then and now. We're talking about A Midnight Cowboy, the 1969 Oscar-winning film. Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy is the documentary from director Nancy Bursky. Claudia, what did you think? I liked it quite a bit. We actually showed it at the Santa Barbara Film Festival last year. I really enjoyed sort of for putting it into the context of the time. I thought, you know, sort of the alchemy of the film being this combination of people, events, and, and timing, and looking at the era, 1969 was such a turbulent time. Um, so, yes, of course, it was a cinematic masterpiece, and it's great to hear from the talent behind it, but I also liked, you know, sort of kind of capturing that sense of iconic change that was going on in the 60s, um, and then the archival material. Uh, the best parts are the interviews, whether they're more recent interviews from Brenda Beccaro or there were even, uh, Dustin Hoffman did not participate, but they had some, uh, they read some of his interviews. And that does feel like a kind of a gaping hole. Yeah, it does. As he's the co-star yeah. of the film. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. want to hear yeah. from him. They use um, audio of him, but it's not the same thing. Exactly. It is filled with like fascinating stories and intriguing facts and tidbits and things like that. I think it's a real must-see for cinephiles, for sure. Um, and, and maybe even for historians and sociologists to, you know, kind of look at how it captured the zeitgeist and the culture at that time. We're talking about Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy. The new documentary is unrated. You can see it at the Lemley Royal Theater in West L.A. or Lemley's Town Center in Encino. The Last Rider is a British documentary about American cyclist Greg LeMond. The film is directed by Alex Holmes. Peter. Uh, this is a very interesting movie because it's about a very interesting subject. Uh, Greg LeMond, uh, you know, was a great uh, b b racing champion. Uh, he won the uh, the Tour de France three times, um, and it 
it describes, you know, his whole trajectory. Uh, when he was a high school kid, he was already a phenom. And then he entered into the uh, the cycling world, which was heavily, I think, to some extent, still, uh, you know, European-centric. And so they weren't that crazy about, you know, a young American kid coming in. And he was so good, uh, you know, and he, he won the Tour de France uh, in, uh, you know, 86. And then he, he was in a hunting accident. Uh, his brother-in-law accidentally shot him, and there were 60 pellets uh, uh, you know, and, and he, he only about half of which were removed and he almost died. Um, and it was, uh, it was a terrible, terrible, uh, you know, traumatic event, but he somehow was able to recover from that and won the Tour de France two more it's an times. Incredible story. You know, in 89 and, and 90. Um, and, and the, the bulk of the film is, is the, the 1989 comeback, uh, where he, where he, uh, raced against his arch rival, Laurent Fignon. And um, I didn't realize that, you know, the Tour de France, it, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're, all the, you're riding on your bike, but then there's like a million trucks and, and, and people running alongside you and, and, you know, armored cars and God knows. You know, it's sort of like being on the 405 at rush hour <laughs> with these bikes. It's fun to watch the TV coverage of it because yeah. it's such a deal. It's You have this yeah. image, like you're saying, of just cyclists going through the no, countryside. No, it's not at all yeah. like that. I mean, I'm surprised they don't, you know, get um, you know, he also mentions in the film that that hadn't come out until rather late in his life. He opened up to the fact that he'd been molested by a friend of his father's when he was a young boy. And that was very traumatic for him. So he's overcome a great deal. Uh, it, it's not in the movie, but I see on the Internet that he has um, treatable leukemia now as well. Um, but, you know, he's always uh, come back from everything. And, and his wife, uh, Kathy, is interviewed extensively in the film. And she's she's wonderful. You know, she so it's 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 a really stirring port. It's it's as a documentary, it's very conventionally made, yeah. but it's a very stirring portrait of a really inspiring guy. The Last Rider, the documentary from director Alex Holmes, focused on American cyclist Greg LeMond. It's rated PG thirteen, and it's in select theaters. After Sherman, a documentary that's directed by John Cesary Goff. It's airing on PBS stations, and it won best documentary at the Santa Barbara. Barbara International Film Festival. Claudia, please tell us about After Sherman. Indeed, it did win our award, and I'm really glad to see that it's going to be on PBS and available for everybody to see. It's this beautifully layered, very moving exploration of the coastal South Carolina's uh, Gullah culture, through, and it's a history of the racial trauma, of course, uh, that has uh, plagued being in the South and being, being African American. It's also a fascinating deep dive into the concept of what is a homeland. Is it where you grew up? He, the the director, John Cesare Goff, grew up in New York, New Jersey, or grew up in New Jersey, lives in New York, but is from this beautiful Gullah country. So some of the cinematography is just stunning. It's so beautiful. It's so lush. It's really a very personal essay. And a lot of it is sort of anchored by his conversations with his father um, and, and, and fragments of dialogues, uh, meditations on the land itself. But his father, uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Norval Goff, he was a descendant of enslaved people and, you know, grew up in, in the South Carolina part of uh, this particular part of South Carolina. And he was also the interim pastor at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, where the white supremacist Dylan Root killed nine black parishioners. So while they're like shucking oysters, the son and the father discuss what it means to forgive. And they talk about forgiveness, which is fascinating. There's a lot of nuance in um, what Goff Sr. is sort of talking about, you know, in terms of the victim's families. And then, then he talks to another Charleston resident who says, you know, he's a Christian, but he can't forgive. And so you, there's an exploration of that. And then they talk about, you know, there's a birthplace and then there's your home place. Um, it's just really beautifully done. It's, it's very... Um, sort of impressionistic, very poetic, almost haunting. There's um, little bits of animation that are sort of braided throughout. It's just a really, really beautiful film um, that explores, you know, this very tragic racial history and then also has the sense of hope in the beauty of the land. And 
You know, it's funny. There used to be the term, and I don't hear it as often about films, meditative. But the idea yes. that you, you're you're sort of soaking this all in and come away then thinking about all the things. Yes. This sounds kind of like one that of those That is exactly films. what it's like. After Sherman, directed by John Sesri Goff, it's unrated and it's premiering on PBS this coming Monday evening. Coming up, we'll hear about the film Love Gets Room, Maximum Truth, and The Perfect Find, those among others. And we'll talk about the resurrection of Vidiots, which used to be a video store. It's now that and much more at its new location in Northeast Los Angeles. We'll talk about that coming up later. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Claudia Puig and Peter Rayner. Next up is Love Gets a Room, the film directed and co-written by Rodrigo Cortez. The film stars Clara Rugard and Ferdia Walsh-Bilo. Peter, what do you think of Love Gets a Room? Well, first of all, this is a totally inappropriate title for the subject of this film. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, it's set in the 1942 uh, uh, Warsaw Warsaw Ghetto, uh, and a, uh, a Jewish stage actress, Clara Rugard, um, has has a, a, an ex lover and a lover, uh, both who who are in this uh, theater troupe that she's a part of, and they're putting on a musical comedy called uh, "Love Looks for an Old Apartment." Uh, go figure. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Why not a new apartment? Your captivating title. Yeah, you know, I mean, this film is just great with titles. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a very strange movie because it it's kind of a backstage musical drama, except a lot of it is also on stage, and and the actors keep storming off the stage when their cues are finished, but then they're complaining about things or, or debating things in the background, and then they come back on stage, it seems like, with split-second timing, and the show goes on forever. It's put on for, uh, for the inhabitants of the Warsaw Ghetto, who are, you know, very uh, stricken-looking and are not allowed to applaud at any time. They have to stomp their feet if they like something. Um, the, the, the central conflict is that... Um, uh, the actress has to decide between staying with her lover in Warsaw and almost certainly dying from that or escaping with, with the other guy uh, out of Warsaw. He has some uh, forged papers that can get her out. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those you know, love versus life things. Um, and uh, it's, it's reasonably compelling but overlong. Uh, and it, uh, the two guys are somewhat interchangeable, uh, it seems like, even in the way they look. Uh, and the, the, the most powerful scene was when um, a Nazi sergeant uh, suddenly walks in on the performance and there's a, you know, a hush passes through the audience and, and he claims to really enjoy it. He's, he's applauding and, you know, and, and he gets a front row seat, but, but clearly he's there for very nefarious ends, uh, and, and that, that's, that's a shocking, scary sequence. Uh, but overall, I think the film is sort of overlong. It, it, it bears some resemblance to Francois Truffaut's Last Metro, uh, in some ways, but uh, not nearly as good. 
The film Love Gets a Room, starring Clara Rugard, Rodrigo Cortez, the director and co-screenwriter. It's unrated, and it's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A., the Lemley Town Center Encino, and it will be available late next week on demand. Uh, Maximum Truth stars Ike Barinholtz and Dylan O'Brien. David Stassen is the director, and uh, Stassen and the star Barinholtz are the co-directors. Claudia, what did you think of Maximum Truth? Um, Yeah, so Ike Barinholtz and David Stassen co-wrote it. um, And, you know, I thought it was low-key but funny. It was a uh, political satire mockumentary, um, and, you know, those can be... At their best, they can be very funny, like Best in Show or This is Spinal Tap. Um, this is not as funny as those, but it is. Um, it does feel pretty spot on about where we are today in terms of politics, you know, news being what people want it to be or want to hear rather than based on the actual truth. So, you know, the title um, comes from that. It's a slight but funny takedown of sort of gotcha politics. Um, and um, so the format is funny and you know, uh, Ike Barinholtz is, is kind of perfect in this role. He says things like to the the documentarian, oh, I miss my platoon. And then you hear the documentarian saying off camera, oh, I didn't realize you served. And he said, well, I wanted to serve. Um, and then he said, one leg is a quarter of an inch shorter than the other. You know, and so you you get little, you know, sort of lines like that. Um, Maximum Truth is the name of his consulting firm because he sued this big weight loss company. And, and um, that's where his career began. So he's trying to catch this this politician who is from all, uh, you know, from all, any way you look at it, he is a perfectly good and uh, caring politician. But some extreme person wants him to uh, kind of catch him in the act of um, having done something wrong. And this this woman says, she's this very rich Beverly Hills woman, she says, you know, I think there's evidence he may be a demon. And uh, I have evidence. And so he's a disaster for us, for us wealthy people. So he goes after him with, and he teams up with this guy, Dylan O'Brien, who's this kind of pumping iron guy. And the two of them are just bumbling and foolish and... Uh, continues along in that vein. Sounds, a, sounds pretty forgettable. It's pretty forgettable, <laughs> except that, you know, you kind of appreciate what he's trying to do. I wish it had been funnier. I wish it had been more clever. But it was it was um, a, an okay way to pass an hour and a half. But I could think of better ways. <laughs> <laughs> Maximum Truth is rated R. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica, and available on demand. The romantic comedic drama The Perfect Find stars Keith Powers and Gabrielle Union. Numa Perrier is the director of the film. Lee Davenport wrote the screenplay. Peter, what did you think of The Perfect Find? Uh, I thought this was a pretty middling uh, rom-com. Gabrielle Union plays this woman who's had a sort of a fashionista who's had a high-profile uh, firing from her job. She's uh, separated from her man of 10 years. Uh, she's living with her parents. Uh, she has an opportunity to um, re-enter the, uh, the the fashion world uh, with a woman who's a, a kind of, she has a history with an arch rival uh, played by Gina Torres, uh, who's sort of like, uh, you know, there's a certain Devil Wears Prada mm-hmm. aspect to this whole story. And, 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 uh, and the boss's do- son uh, is also working there. He's a USC film student uh, who wants to, you know, go on and make movies, but he's working for his mother, and uh, unbeknownst to the mother, um, uh, he, he's put together with uh, with Gabriel Union to work on a, on a campaign, and they fall in love, mm. uh, and they try to keep it secret for a while, and, uh, you know, various things happen. It... it I gather a lot of people connected to this film have connections to the real fashion world, but it seemed very inauthentic, this whole, you know, it just seemed overblown and overscaled and, and over everything. Uh, and um, I didn't find any real chemistry between the two of them. They're both very attractive actors, but uh, but there's no chemistry, really, and that's sort of the problem with the rom-com at the center of it. The two actors are Keith Powers and Gabrielle Union. The perfect find is the film. What do you think, Claudia? Pretty much the same, although I did think they had some chemistry. Um, and uh, I, I kind of like the side characters a little bit more, like Gina Torres and then her uh, the people who play her friends. And then Godfrey, the comedian, has a, has a small part. Um, and I, I think Gabrielle Union has this great comic timing and range, and she can come across, you know, ambitious and sexy and brainy and feisty and vulnerable all within a couple of minutes. So I think she's great, and she's very effervescent in it. I kind of liked... 
this is a very a small part of it, but you know, he was getting his degree from film school. She used she had studied to be a film historian. And I kind of like how it embraced the vintage romantic cinema in it a little bit. Um, you know, they had the soundtrack was like Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole. And then they both have this, they bond over their shared affection for this, uh, the first black female leading actor, Nina Mae McKinney. So we see some of the footage from that. She was known as a black garbo. So like the, those little side yeah, notes kind yeah. of. Um, if you love movies, that is, mm-hmm. that's a nice uh threads in the film yeah yeah so i appreciated that much more than the career versus love dilemma or oh i'm dating a young guy you know all that stuff um that felt very sort of predictable rom-com but it was like those those smaller moments that kind of made it for me the perfect find is the film it's streaming on netflix it's rated tvma it won the audience award at the tribeca film festival numa perrier is the director of the perfect find here is better is a documentary uh, that looks at PTSD for those who've served in the American military. Jack Youngelson uh, is the director of Here Is Better. Claudia. Yeah, this is a powerful film, uh, mostly for the content of it, not necessarily for the filmmaking itself, but it captures the lives of veterans and people affected by PTSD and depicts their struggles and courage in a way that feels very personal and moving. Um, it's structured around... Um, these four people, um, three of whom were had served in either Afghanistan or Iraq, and one was a Vietnam vet. Um, and it, it spends time with them in various sessions um, with therapists or sort of in a group setting. And it really focuses on the slow and painstaking work of actually facing your trauma and opening up about it. And then, you know, the dealing with it, of course, is a lifelong thing. Um but by the end, we feel just there's small moments of hope and, and glimmers of transcendence. Um, the most high profile of the four is Jason Kander, who was a rising star in the Democratic Party. And he was running for mayor of Kansas City um, in 2018. He suddenly dropped out of the race, uh, even when he, though he was a front runner. And he had spent some time as an Army intelligence officer in Afghanistan, and he announced that he was going to seek treatment for PTSD and depression. You see how it was affecting his marriage and his life. Um, and then the others are, are you know, less well-known people, but no less, no less you know, powerful uh, in terms of their, their struggles and their stories. Someone talks about PTSD as being like going into a haunted house where you see people coming out crying, the treatment for PTSD. You see people coming out crying. You go in excited, thinking, you know, you're going into the unknown. And then you get to the front of the line, and you're nervous, and you don't want to do it. And then once you get in, it's dark, and it's scary, and there are noises. And so it was a really interesting to hear the stories of the people who were suffering very honestly talk about their PTSD. Um, really, I thought it, was, it, it worked really well. Sounds powerful. Here is Better. The documentary from Jack Youngelson tells the story of four veterans, two men, two women, and their families as uh, the former military uh, uh, servers deal with PTSD. The documentary is at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica, and available on digital starting next Tuesday. The French-language film Scarlet stars Juliette Jouan. Pietro Marcello is the director, uh, co-wrote the screenplay with Maurizio Brauchi and Maud Ameline. Peter, what do you think of Scarlet? This is a very strange movie. Uh, it was directed by, um, as you mentioned, Pietro Marcello, who uh, was best known for Martin Eden uh, a few years ago, which was a powerful Italian film. This is his first film in, in French. Um, it's about a, a, a woodcarver who returns from World War I uh, to his small village in Normandy, and um, his wife has died in childbirth. So uh, the young uh, baby girl is taken in by um, uh, an unmarried f- uh, a farm owner who, who takes her into her house, played by, well played by Naomi Lovovsky. Um, and uh, Raphael Thierry, who's the, uh, the, the old the, the soldier, is, is a sort of, you know, rustic... Uh, peasanty, you know, right out of, uh, you know, a, a Marcel Pagnol French film. He looks a lot like Michel Simon, a uh, great French actor from the 30s and 40s, um, a real man of the earth, but he, he's, he's kind of ostracized in the community. Um, the first third of the film uh, is, is very realistic and very uh, observant of the community and its mores. Then it turns into a kind of uh, 
musical almost. Uh, there are a million tones going on in this film. Uh, Juliet, uh, who's played by Juliet Juan, uh, the, the young girl who grows up, has uh, uh, an affair with a pilot who literally falls from the skies, as predicted by the, the town witch, the wonderful actress Yolanda Moreau. Uh, you know, I mean, there's musical numbers. It, it's just, it's all over the place, which to some extent I like, you know, as opposed to just a straight ahead film. Yeah. But you have to know going in that this movie is a uh, the definition of a mixed bag. <laughs> Scarlet from director and co-writer Pietro Marcello. It's in French with English subtitles, unrated at Lemley's Glendale and Lemley's, uh, I'm sorry, Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. Uh, the documentary uh, Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, directed by Stephen Kayak. Claudia. Well, this is very worshipful um, and filled with gossipy, salacious tidbits, but it's also kind of one-dimensional. I wish this had been a more well-rounded documentary, especially since anyone who's under 50 watching this may know very little about Rock Hudson as an actor. Uh, It feels like a juicy tabloid article with a lot more juice than substance. it's you know there are lines where they they pull lines out of the movie and they uh, out of his movies and juxtapose it with uh, things like oh look someone said you know your days of being a gay married bachelor are are over and you know that kind of elicits a double entendre smirk but I feel like it did a disservice in a way to Rock Hudson because you know he we all know he was this strapping handsome movie star and he was the quintessence of American masculinity we know that he died of AIDS in 1985 and was a closeted gay man and so they focus a lot on his sexuality but not very much on his career and you know because of that focus we don't get a sense of who Roy Fitzgerald which is his real name who he was it's structured around these interviews with a handful of former lovers and friends and they spill very private details about his personal life ranging from like who he slept with to the size of his manhood um, and they have Did a secret... you have problems with that, with that sort of con- conversation with someone who's gone talking about that d- level of detail of I their lives? I kind of do because I feel like, you know, he tried so hard and I realized that he was living in a time when you had to be closeted, but, you know, he tried so hard to present this, this figure and then here you are, you know, sort of, I don't know, doing, I mean, outing him is a, is a whole other thing, but you're recording this call that feels more prurient than enlightening yeah, at all. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some, there's some issues with it. Um, I wish it had just, you know, the juxtaposition of how closeted he was and, and then, you know, kind of the details of his sex life being spilled, I felt didn't give you much. Rock Hudson, all that haven't allowed, it's unrated. It's streaming on Max starting next Wednesday. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. How to LA is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. Larry Mantle and our critic Claudia Puig continues in this next segment because she's had a very central and important role with the revival of Vidiots. Do you remember the video store in Santa Monica by that name? It was open for many years and a go-to place for all kinds of independent cinema, very hard-to-find films that were available for rent. Well, Vidiots, the store, closed in 2017. 
five years plus later, it's reopened in Eagle Rock, taking over a vintage cinema, rehabbing the facility, two screens on site. Yes, video rentals also available, and Vidiots has now reopened. Joining us, the executive director of the nonprofit Vidiots, Maggie McKay, and board member and LAist film critic Claudia Puig. Maggie, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor. <laughs> so, what was the biggest challenge of getting the new location up and running? Oh, well, of one. course, <laughs> one or many. Um, I would say there were two equal challenges. Um, one, <laughs> Fundraising for a major renovation of a movie theater and video store during a pandemic. And then also all of the things that come with brick and mortar in Los Angeles and permitting and navigating parking. parking. Oh, parking actually hasn't been much of an issue for us. We're lucky in Eagle Rock. We have plenty of street parking. But um, permitting and, and, you know, raising money for something like this for any arts endeavor is a challenge in the United States. And when you're in in a pandemic, that doesn't make things easier. But here we are, open. Well, and, and I'm sure you're aware, you know, the American Cinematheque has had financial challenges over the years. Being a nonprofit film entity that screens films, this is a very challenging space to be in. What got you over the hurdle, uh, and this could be for you, Claudia, as well, that led you to believe this this could be self-supporting, that this could be uh, a going concern? I mean, for me, it was always knowing that Vidiots was such a beloved entity. I hate to call it a brand. It's so much bigger than that. Um, it's I knew that the wind behind our back the entire time was how beloved Vidiots is in Los Angeles and how many generations of people it impacted over the course of 32 years in Santa Monica. Um, I knew that because people, we had a lot of time for people to tell us that. Yeah, and people who showed up, even after the so-called video era was done, you still had so many faithful people who came in the door. Well, the excitement, I think, of the the love that is felt for videos, and also there was a lot of love that we sort of found out about the Eagle Theater, which is, you know, has been repurposed, of course, and is now this gorgeous state-of-the-art place. <laughs> that was surprising. People were saying, oh, I came here with my kids, and, and the idea of I a remember theater. Yeah, there. right? And and people can not only that but people uh you know the idea of a theater on the east side. That's because we don't have especially showing, you know, foreign films or uh classic films, you know, as we've lost a Lemley here in Pasadena. It's that's so critical. I think that the sort of the confluence of all that excitement. Absolutely. And then there were so many people especially in the early moments of of revealing that we were going into the Eagle, who said, oh, I grew up in Eagle Rock. I grew up at the Eagle. I went to UCLA or I moved to the West Side. I got my film education at Vidiots. I'm back on the East Side now. I mean, their heads were exploding that these two <laughs> things were coming together. Well, and have you seen to this point that some of the people who were patrons on the West Side are making the trek to Eagle Rock to the facility, or do you feel like this is a totally new audience? Absolutely, we've had. I mean, we have so many customers and even former clerks who were very devoted to Vidiots when they lived on the West Side. Now they live on the East Side. Um, there's been such a migration of people from West to East in Los Angeles, but also, yeah, we've had. I mean, Thompson Dehas, one of our very first clerks, came out to one of our first events and. You know, we all held hands and cried a little. Our founders are very much involved. They're getting used to making the drive. And they're the West Westsiders. Yeah. 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 So I, and share with us about fundraising because it's it's an unconventional charity to fundraise for something like this. You know, typically if it's film preservation, things like that, studios have been hit up a lot to to fund those kinds of projects. So when it comes to fundraising for Vidiots, who have been the, the major donors? Yeah. I mean... Uh, you know, I like to say that our major donors, who we call our founding members, are donors 5,000 and above. And I would say that they're the people who care most about film in L.A. and not just about their own ability to watch and consume film, but about what will happen to film if there's not a future generation um, given access to fall in love with it. And that's really what this is all about is creating, recreating points of access that all of us had. We all had 
multiple points of access growing up to this art form, and those have been greatly diminished. And so our founding members, um, there are so many, uh, Ryan and Karina, Ryan Johnson and Karina Longworth were early founding members, Phil Lord, Nate Moore, um, Mark Duplass, Mark Duplass and, Jay, yeah. um, and Katie Hazelton. So many people who believed in this when there wasn't a whole lot to believe in. It was an old building. Um, me, with no history of fundraising, <laughs> and our amazing board of directors. But again, it went back to vidiots, uh-huh. and it went back to a need. And um, I think that's that's where we got where we are. And then the community who maybe were giving in smaller amounts, but very consistently, um, kids putting together you know, lemonade stands in the <laughs> depths of the pandemic to to make sure that their movie theater got finished. We're talking with the uh, director of uh, what had been the Eagle Theater, now the new locations for Vidiots, Maggie McKay, executive director. Vidiots has been a nonprofit uh, video store. It's been operating since 1985. Maggie also was the senior programmer for the L.A. Film Festival for more than a decade, director of nominations for the Independent Spirit Award, and has been with Sundance, with AFI, with Aspen Film, and others. And uh, the first executive director of Vidiots joining the organization in 2016. Claudia, I wanted to ask you about um, the the demand for uh, actually, you know, renting videos from a place like Vidiots when so much is available now to stream on Macs. Uh, you've got, you know, the old Warner Brothers collection. A lot of that is available to stream. There's the Criterion Collection, which has a lot of foreign and classic films, uh, uh, international cinema that's highlighted there. So what's the advantage of having a place you can go to rent a film? Well, there's still major gaps, I think. You know, I I, I know that I found that when I think, oh, I want to stream something, I want to watch something, and I try to find it everywhere. Can't find it. Can't find it. Or, you know, maybe you find it on Amazon, you have to pay a whole bunch of money there's something about physical media too right we're you know returning back to vinyl you know there are a lot of us who prefer books over you know uh you know other forms ipads and things so i think that is returning i think the physical media and i know that for instance in just the first few days that you opened what it was like 1200 uh dvds and blu-rays yeah. were rented. wow yeah. we shattered wow. all of our rental records since 1985 within the first i think five days of being open starting on june 1 and we've since rented well over 2000 titles and some of them are movies that are not streaming streaming many of them are but i also think what we're seeing is um this return to Uh, human interaction around film. I think people are really excited to come into a space, have a conversation with a person, whether it's a clerk or it's another customer or it's their kids. Um, I think people are remembering that physical browsing of a library is very different than the scroll. Um, And what, again, what this means is that you're creating another point of access for a person to remember or to discover for the first time how much they like the movies. And that's um, really valuable. I think we have many, many streaming services um, that have been very supportive of idiots and they get it. They get that the tides rise all boats. Yeah. And so more points of access mean more fans. Better for the overall industry. Yeah. We'll continue our conversation on the reopening of Vidiot's brand new location at what had been the Eagle Theater in Eagle Rock on Eagle Rock Boulevard, reopened both as a place to see films on two screens, but also to rent videos of some of the great films or little hidden gems that our film week critics tell you about that you may not know about, but you'll find them there at Vidiots. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critic Claudia Puig and by the executive director of the nonprofit Vidiots, 
which uh, has reopened a brand new location, completely remodeled in Eagle Rock. It's a combination of what Vidiot's had been with its video rental service in Santa Monica for decades, but adds also a larger uh, and a smaller screening room uh, to be able to show films that will be of interest to the Vidiot's audience. You were talking about uh, the benefits of being able to physically go through and and look at discs that you're going to take out and and rent. And it reminded me recently I went to a a record store. I was looking for for some jazz vinyl. And, you know, some of the other customers, we just started talking about artists and talking, oh, have you heard this recording? And that was a Japanese date that ended up being, you know. And it's like that with films. It's it because you have these kinds of conversations you're never going to have sitting in your living room, uh, scrolling through a streamer looking at classic films. Right. I mean, film inherently is has always been a social art form. There has always been that aspect of it. And um, seeing just in the last two weeks of being open, uh, groups of teenagers come by themselves to the movies and then wander into the video store. Um, parents bringing their little ones in for their very first movie-going experience at the Eagle and then bringing them to the video store and having these little kids who can't even read yet are able to connect with this medium because they can pick up a box, they can look at it, they can point to things, they can bring them to the clerk and the clerk can engage with them. Um, that is fundamentally uh, important and it it really creates community and it creates fandom and it creates the the sort of encourages the future of movie going too and and what format or is it typically blu-ray that you rent or what is it right we're renting on dvd and blu-ray our rare vhs collection is uh up over eleven thousand titles wow it's pretty precious a lot of it yeah. so um we do have a preservation and digitizing initiative um, that we're looking for funding for, and eventually we'll we'll digitize and take care of all of those. So but you're letting preserved. those tapes of things you've only got on tape go out the door. We're not. We're oh, keeping okay. those. Gonna, yeah, we're yeah. keeping those pretty safe. They're pretty old at this They're point. They're pretty old, <laughs> but. Even many of our DVDs are really precious at this point because they're out of print. So we're pretty careful about what we what we rent out. But we're now, when we went into storage, we were 50,000 titles on DVD and Blu-ray. We are now 61,000 titles. Because people donated. Yeah, thanks yeah. to a very big donation. Um, and then several small ones. But the collection itself is is. Mm-hmm. Mind blowing. So you typically have Blu-ray if it's available on Blu-ray. Is that right? Correct. And we and we are working diligently to build up the Blu-ray collection. And you rent out players too for people who we don't do. have them. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah. We, we haven't had any requests because so many of our customers. Never dispensed with Well, and and it's funny because they're so inexpensive now. Remember when Blu-rays first came out and they were so expensive? Now you can pick one up so inexpensively. It's uh, it's changed a lot, Uh, even though aren't many people buying Blu-ray players anymore. Um, But uh, there are some advantages, again, also in in just the ability to move around the film using that format as well. So uh, I know you're going to be doing all kinds of market research, Maggie, about where people come from, but are you getting a sense of how widespread the draw is to Vidiots in Eagle Rock? I mean, I would say we have a very devoted customer base in Northeast Los Angeles. We're seeing our neighbors walk down the street and come to the theater over and over and over again. I mean, we have a lot of regulars coming to the theater now, um, but we're definitely pulling from, I would say, a very wide swath of the east side of Los Angeles. And definitely we have people making pilgrimages from know, the west I side. I know people from Santa Barbara who are coming, so yes. Wow, that's <laughs> great to know. Yeah. I mean, it is... It's really encouraging because it's a lot like what Santa Monica Vidiots was. It's people who are coming from far away because it's a, such a special place and they can access things that they couldn't anywhere else. And we are seeing that. 
What about the um, projection equipment? Because you had to totally read. It was a movie theater, but hadn't shown films in many years. I think it was a church in the interim, if I recall. Right. So what what have you done in terms of outfitting so you can give the highest quality projection experience? Well, in addition to replacing every bit of electrical um, every piece of HVAC, almost entirely new plumbing. We also were very lucky and had some very generous donations of digital projectors and 35 millimeter projectors um, and a huge sound donation. The sound is incredible. Um, we're working on our 35 millimeter projectors. 35s take a lot of TLC in this day and age. So they'll be up and running hopefully later this summer. But right now we've got a gorgeous 4k Christie projector in the big house and a 2k Christie in the little house and we've been doing great so far what's the capacity of the two houses the big house is 271 the theater was initially a house for almost 900 wow in its heyday it had absolutely no lobby no accessibility so we've we've corrected that and that's part of why the project took so long and um you know was so costly because we wanted to make it a space for everybody we also knew we needed a bigger gathering space and a smaller screening space so the big room is still pretty big for 271 we've got a lot of room in front of the screen for little dance parties and kids to sit on the floor and um you know we can build a stage if we need to but the idea was to make it as flexible and as welcoming as possible. So what's the range of programming that you'd both like to see? Claudia, what, what oh, do you desire Well, there? there's so many great classic. Uh, and I think you're doing such a great balance of programming because there are a couple. There's Earth Mama, which is coming out from A24, July 7th. That's going to be there. Um, and then, you know, in contrast, there's like The Harder They Come or Best in Show or um, His Girl Friday. I mean, it's just it's basically just great movies from all these different eras. Um, and then you have, I think, this Sunday, there's two wedding-related movies, The Wedding Banquet and Monsoon. Oh, we've got Monsoon. a whole day of weddings. For June, June weddings. weddings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> right? Monsoon Wedding. That is, and... That's a great wedding film. Yeah, it's a great wedding film. And then The Wedding Banquet. didn't quite take, but yeah. But, um, well, it sounds like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be quite diverse and... Um, Hopefully, even though it's on the east side, you'll be able to get, you know, some top people in the film industry who might not live in the area to make the trek to come out for the events you've got. I saw a very famous person in the video store the other day. I went to oh, go see did. In the Mood for Love um, at Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. It was gorgeous. It was so beautiful. And then I went into the video store thinking, I'll, you know, just and it was so crowded. I was amazed. And I saw a famous filmmaker who I won't mention, but um, just kind of browsing. That delights me. I didn't even know. (laughs) I mean, I think that's, Vidiots was always a home for anybody who was interested in film. And we did. We had a very, you know, well-established industry customer base. Many people who got their education at Vidiots and then became, you know, some of our greatest filmmaking talent. And I think that we're going to see that again. Maggie McKay, thank you for coming in and talking about Vidiots. I think it's also important to say founded by, led by women as well, and a very loyal following that's now making its way to Eagle Rock. Thank you so much. Thank we you so much it. for having me. Thank you. She's the executive director of Vidiot's nonprofit video store and now screening space in Eagle Rock on Eagle Rock Boulevard, just south of Colorado. They've totally revamped what had been the Eagle Theater for many years. And our Claudia Puig, who's a board member of Vidiot's, she's been involved in this project for a number of years as well. Claudia, thanks so much. We appreciate it. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Have a great weekend. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there.